0: Thank you all for coming today. We're gonna to get started. Uh, my name is John Maniscalco. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. Uh, the good news is, for all you unpaid interns and underpaid staffers, lunch is on the Cato Institute today. The bad news is that for anything with sugar in it, we probably paid too much for it. And then, and that is the topic of our discussion today, Why? the reason for that, uh, sugar protectionism. Uh, For, I suppose, about 80 years, uh, the sugar industry has enjoyed temporary uh, protection by the U.S. government. Uh, Through restrictions on imports, which take the form of tariff rate quotas, the sugar program is designed to support a minimum guaranteed price uh, for sugar for domestic producers, and as a result, the U.S. price for sugar uh, has exceeded the world for decades and at some points more than doubled the world price. This puts enormous pressure on domestic sugar-using firms like candy manufacturers and food processors, uh, many of whom have shuttered operations in the U.S. and have reloaded to Canada or Mexico in search of cheaper sugar. As of 2008, under the terms of uh, NAFTA, the sugar tariff rate quote is no longer applied to Mexican producers, but NAFTA didn't put an end to the use of trade remedy laws and U.S. sugar producers earlier this year Filed both an anti-dumping and countervailing duty complaint against Mexican producers, alleging sales at less than fair value and sales benefiting from Mexican government subsidies. Anti-dumping and countervailing duty investigations are underway at the Commerce Department and the U.S. International Trade Commission, and final decisions are likely to be published in early 2015. And uh, here with us today to talk about Big Sugar and the latest chapter in the saga of Sugar Protectionism are Ike Brannan, Dan Ikenson, and Dan Pearson, and I'll introduce them now. Ike Brannan is a Growth Fellow of the uh, George W. Bush Institute. He is currently the president of the consulting firm, Capital Policy Analytics, and the head of the Savings and Retirement Foundation. Previously, he served as Director of uh, of Economic Policy as well as Congressional Relations at the American Action Forum. And prior to that, he spent nearly a decade in government serving as Chief Economist for the House Energy and Commerce Committee as well as the chief economist for the Republican Policy Committee and senior advisor for tax policy at US Treasury. Uh, up next will be Dan Eikenson. He's the director for Cato Center for Trade Policy Studies, uh, where he coordinates and conducts research on all matters of international trade and investment policy. Since joining Cato in 20, 2000, Eikenson has authored dozens of papers on various aspects of trade policy, focusing his research on US-China trade relations, bilateral and multilateral trade agreements, and institutions, globalization, US manufacturing issues, trade politics, trade remedies, such as the anti-dumping regime. Dan Pearson is the senior fellow for trade policy studies at Cato. Previously, he served for 10 years on the uh, US International Trade Commission, and he's served as both that agency's chairman and vice chairman. Prior to joining that agency, Pearson served as assistant vice president of public affairs and as a policy analyst for Cargill from 1987 to 2003. And he also is no stranger to the Hill. He was agricultural legislative assistant to Senator Rudy Boschwitz of Minnesota from 1981 to 1987. And with that, I will turn
1: it over to Ike. Uh, thank you very much, and uh, thank you for uh, skipping the Mexico Cameroon World Cup game. I feel I feel honored that you've prioritized this. Um, it, it's uh, it's good to be back in Rayburn. Uh, I uh, for two three years when I was at the Energy and Commerce Committee, I had the office. Um, just on this floor, closest to the other set of banquet uh, halls on the on the other side, and uh, we got even cheaper free food every time they had any excess. So it was, I'm glad I left. I gained 15 pounds. Um, let me just talk briefly about uh, what I see as the problems with our current sugar policy. Um, you know, if you if you ever looked at the Cato website, they have all kinds of of articles that lay out the fundamental problem um, with. Uh, that that advocates of free trade face when they try to convince uh, governments or or the legislature to to do more of this. The problem is that the benefits of free trade are very diffused across the overall population. We get slightly lower prices because of it. But on the other hand, there are job losses, and the job losses are generally fairly concentrated in a narrow group of people. So it's much easier to rally a, a few hundred or a few thousand people who lose their jobs rather than 200 million people who are going to gain lower prices as a result. So we invariably have this this tension between uh, between the people who want to do things for consumers and uh, the the laborers. In the case of sugar, we don't have this dynamic because not only do consumers lose because we pay higher prices for anything with sugar in it, but laborers lose as well. We have, sugar is, is, a, is a raw material for all kinds of things, not only, uh, not only for cookies, but all kinds of other things as well, and um, uh, sweets in particular, and we can't produce those things at a cost-effective basis here in the United States anymore because of high sugar prices. Um, in fact, um, from central Illinois and um, for a long time, Uh, Going along what is now the I-39 corridor, there are all kinds of cookie plants. then when you went up, uh, Archway cookies used to be produced there. And then going on into the south side of Chicago, there was the Brock's Candy Factory and all kinds of other candy factories, all of which have shut down, simply because it doesn't make any cost-effective sense to produce these things here in the United States. Uh, So who's benefiting? If it's not the workers, if it's not the consumers, it's a very small group of people who have sizable agricultural investments. In, um, in producing sugar. So um, if, you, if you want to look at it, you know, sometimes people have argued against policies that bring more free trade saying, well, you give a few benefits to everyone else, but people who are worse off the low paid laborers who lose their jobs are made even worse off. This is, this is an even more uh, unequal uh, distributional outcome, right? The average, the masses, the median people lose because we pay higher prices for goods and for these goods. Uh, the workers uh, lose jobs; we have fewer jobs as a result of this. And the people who gain are people who generally make more money than you or me. The other thing I just want to talk briefly before I, I let Dan talk a little bit more about about uh, in more in depth on this is that this whole notion of anti-dumping, and remember what what we're talking about right now is is this provision that Mexico is dumping or selling their uh, sugar at too low a price in the United States, dumping is a concept that economists have long ago discredited. This notion that there are markets where people sell goods at too low a price, and that so they can't recoup their profits, and then they wait later on to make more money once they've pushed out all their competitors, it, it's simply something we don't witness in markets. Right? The problem is that we have what we call contestable markets. That even if you are, if you do manage to push out Competitors, you still have the ability for new competitors to enter quickly into the marketplace. So, really, ever since the mid-1970s, a decade before I went to uh, to graduate school, no one really talked about cutthroat competition or too low competition. Of course, you know the famous uh, John Maynard Keynes quote that uh, that most politicians are the slave of some defunct economist. We usually talk about, in the, in the case of Keynes himself, and the fact that we have so many demand-side uh, macroeconomist in, in, in Capitol Hill when no PhD economist believes in that. There's also all kinds of politicians who believe that there's this evil boogeyman called cutthroat competition when in reality there is no such thing. Uh, and then the last thing to think about when Mexican sugar is being accused of selling at too low a price, at a price that doesn't c- cover their cost, is that there really isn't a very good measure that the ITC is using when they're trying to come up with what the costs are of Mexican sugar—it's all—it's—it's it's, it's terribly flawed, and basically, it's based on this notion that if you sell in different markets at different prices, that means uh, you must be, in effect, uh, price selling at too low a price. So, um, in short, uh, anti-dumping is a uh, is an outmoded concept that serves only to uh, be a tool for politicians to do what they want to do for a few favorite people. The result of this policy is we pay a lot more for cookies or sugar, or we see uh, sh- soda pop with, uh, you can tell where I'm from, soda pop, um, with uh, corn syrup rather than sugar. Very few people benefit from this and this time. We took a serious look at that. I think now is a very good time to look at not only the, the, the concept of dumping uh, but also looking at this particular issue which has to do with um, uh, Mexican companies that are being issued this complaint because right now there is a big push. It's a bipartisan push to have a closer uh, North American integration. And uh, part of that has to do with the fact that Mexico is just starting to loosen up their um, energy laws to allow more foreign investment into Mexico energy. And Mexico has a lot more oil and gas that can be tapped than Pemex was able to get. Um, And the other thing is we need Mexico and Canada on board as we try to pursue new free trade agreements, both with Europe and with um, uh, the Asian-rim countries. And so I think angering or jeopardizing this NAFTA relationship, which is really what this is all about, um, really bodes poorly for two other initiatives, bipartisan initiatives that people really both sides of the aisle think are, are really important. So that, I'll stop. Thank you.
2: Hi, everybody. Hello. Let me, uh, is there a screen for the PowerPoint? Oh, fair, fair. oh there it is. Good. <laughs> and I guess I'll just push forward. All right. Thank you. Um, I agree with Ike that we should be revisiting this whole concept of, of dumping. It's outdated. Uh, It's unfair. It makes no sense. And in fact, I joined Cato 14 years ago uh, to sort of head up the Project on Anti-Dumping Reform, which was supposed to be a two-year project. And I guess we sort of underestimated the uh, durability of the the anti-dumping law. Uh, But Sugar gives an excellent example to talk about a particular facet of of the law that that I want to talk about today. You don't need to really look there for a little while. Uh, I'm going to get to the slides toward the end. But you know, we've developed this really bad habit I'm afraid, of looking only at first order conditions. And when I say we have developed a bad habit, I mean you. Uh, all of us, really, policymakers, the media, uncritically, uncritical um, the public, sort of see and accept at face value the benefits of certain policies without considering any interest in the secondary effects, the second order effects. You know, who else is impacted? Uh, what are the costs? Are these costs justified? Um, When we talk about the sugar program or steel tariffs or the export-import bank or bailing out GM, supporters tend to cheer, wow, great success. Look what we've done to create economic activity. Look what we've done to create jobs and protect jobs. Um, But for each of those policies, uh, for each of those actions that are designed to benefit a specific interest, there are less visible but but all too real costs that are imposed uh, on, on other segments of the economy. Sugar and steel tariffs raise costs for downstream industries that uh, rely on those uh, products uh, for, in, for inputs. The Export-Import Bank may benefit particular exporters by subsidizing their sales to particular customers abroad, but it hurts the US competitor of those customers. Uh, they're not too keen on the fact that their, sale, that their competitors, their foreign competitors, are being subsidized by taxpayers, US taxpayers. There's a, there's a problem there. With GM, wow, it was a great success, right? But you know that the spoils of competition were denied the other auto producers, whether they're. US. nameplate or foreign nameplate producers. Uh, you know they, didn't, they, they could have picked up the revenues, their market share, they were entitled to that. They won in, in the competition, but they, they, they didn't have access to the engineers and to the workers. Uh, so instead of being out 10 billion, which is a, the official tally of the, of the GM bailout, uh, there are unspoken costs and untold costs and it's very difficult to measure, but, but they certainly do exist. Um, the, uh, this, is, this happens whenever policies are, uh, are implemented that are supposed to benefit particular firms or particular industries, uh, that there are costs to others in the economy. And that certainly is the case with, with sugar. The sugar program has been in existence for a long time. It's kept the US price for sugar well above the world average for decades, uh, often double the price. Uh, sometimes I think it has exceeded triple the price. Uh, in the u s uh, relative to, to the world price, since two thousand uh, sugar prices in the United States have been about on average eighty five percent greater uh, than the world average price, and that has adversely impacted consumers uh, it's it's reduced their 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 buying power and it has hurt u uh, s industries that rely on sugar as an important ingredient in producing their output um, in the five year period. Uh, uh, following 2,000, 10,000 jobs in the sugar using industries were lost. Uh, Ike referred to some of this uh, among pr- prominent candy makers like Brock's, Hershey's, uh, Sunrise Confections, uh, which makes a lot of Valentine's Day candies, Ferrara Pan Candy, which makes Red Hots, which was my favorite candy as a kid. Um, these A lot of these plants closed here in the United States and opened elsewhere because these companies wanted access to lower uh, priced sugar, which is a, it's, a, it's the main component If it comprises a major uh, share of your total cost of production, you you are inclined to chase those lower prices. Um, Other big sugar using industries like uh, breakfast cereal manufacturers, uh, flavoring syrup manufacturers, bread and bakery products, mayonnaise and dressings, ice cream and frozen desserts, canned vegetables and fruits, soft drinks, pet food manufacturing, breweries. All of these downstream industries use sugar and they uh, bear the brunt of our sugar policy. Um, and just to give you just a, a, a relative figure here, these downstream industries have accounted for approximately $300 billion uh, in sales revenue in, t- in 2013. That's 20 times the revenue of the sugar producing industry. So there are at, at the NICS, the NAC, NAIC, North American Industrial Classification System, at the four digit level, there are eight downstream industries to, to sugar. They're the ones who account for $300 billion in revenue, 20 times the revenue of sugar producers. They also employ about 700,000 workers, which is 30 times the number of workers in the sugar producing industry. So there's a pretty strong case to be made that sugar users are more critical to the US economy than sugar producers are. Uh, but the, pro- the producers are more successfully engaged uh, on K Street, as it turns out. Uh, according to a nifty short paper by uh, trade colleague Brian Riley from Heritage, who's in, in the audience, Um, Sugar represents about 2% of the value of U.S. crop production, but accounts for 35% of crop industry's campaign donations and 40% of the crop industry's lobbying expenditures. So they are highly engaged in the political process. Many of you have probably seen them in the halls here. Uh, Some may be nestled amongst us. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So um, I'm going to focus... The remainder of my remarks on the trade remedies aspect of of this, by that I mean the anti-dumping and countervailing duty aspects. Technically, anti-dumping and countervailing duty is not part of sugar policy. Right? It's not uh, Congress or the administration coming up with a discrete policy. These are are laws that Congress has made available to industry uh, to terrorize each other with. Um, So when when the sugar industry brought this case, it wasn't the Obama administration doing something to Mexican producers. It was the the U.S. producers. So that's an important uh, distinction to make. I think a lot of people confuse confuse that. Um, Anti-dumping measures are are imposed when an industry can demonstrate that it is materially injured or threatened with material injury or uh, the uh, establishment of an industry is materially retarded by reason of less than fair value imports. Countervailing duties, are, can, will be imposed when uh, an industry can demonstrate that it is materially injured, threatened with material injury, or the, an industry is materially retarded uh, by reason of subsidized uh, exports. So there's, they're different. You hear in the media a lot of people talk about dumped, subsidized imports. They conflate the two. They're actually two different uh, laws, two different proceedings. Uh, I'm going to focus on the anti-dumping aspect, because I've collected a lot more research. Uh, there uh, over the over the years than on CBD. Mm. So we had an affirmative pre- preliminary determination from the International Trade Commission last month uh, on both the CBD and the the anti-dumping case. Um, you know the evidentiary threshold uh, at the preliminary level is 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 pretty low. Uh, the standard is that the ITC will. It weighs the evidence before it and determines whether the record as a whole contains clear and convincing evidence that there is no material injury or threat of material injury. And two, uh, no likelihood exists that contrary evidence will uh, uh, materialize in the final investigation. So I think over 90% of prelims uh, go affirmative. I think that's about the number that I I recall having looked at. Um, The final determination for the CVD cases out at this point later this year and the anti-dumping case beginning of next year. But in between, the Commerce Department runs an analysis. Uh, so focusing on the anti-dumping investigation. What's that? If you can call it that. <laughs> yeah, an uh, anti-dumping uh, charade analysis. Uh, they, uh, they will evaluate the, the sales and the cost of production of the foreign producers and run through this computer program that uh, that purports to compare prices in a fair way by subtracting out selling expenses and, uh, and and movement expenses to get back to an ex- ex-factory price and compare. Of course, uh, all sorts of sh- shenanigans like zeroing, which you may have heard about, where unfair comparisons are made by not, uh, actually, I'm not going to get into all that, but it's uh, there, 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 are, there are lots of uh, areas where the, the Commerce Department can put its thumb on the scale, uh, and it has a tendency to do so. Um, so the ITC will uh, render a final after it gets feedback from the Commerce Department. Um, if, if Commerce and ITC both go affirmative, then an anti-dumping order will be imposed. Here's the problem. Nowhere in the process uh, is there an assessment of the consumer impact or the downstream impact. I, I gave you some statistics before. Sugar, small sugar producers, lots and lots of sugar users. Those sugar users don't have a seat at the table. Um, The the, the ITC is statutorily forbidden uh, from considering the impact on consumers and on on downstream industries. So the anti-dumping law is really a palliative uh, for petitioning producers, uh, but an imposition on their customers, really, uh, whether they're end users or or downstream producers. So because of globalization, uh, because of the proliferation of cross-border investment uh, and and, uh, transnational supply chains, Anti-dumping measures are increasingly ensnaring raw materials and intermediate goods. So in the first decade of this millennium, 2000 to 2009, four out of every five anti-dumping cases were on imported intermediate goods. Uh, Products like magnesium, uh, sodium nitrate, silicon metal, hot rolled steel were among the 130 uh, final anti-dumping orders imposed uh, from 1990 to 99 on cases that were initiated between 2000 and 2009. 99 of those orders uh, concerned inputs of manufactured goods. And in 35 of those cases, 35 of those 99, the petitioning industry consisted of just one company, one petitioner, multitudes of customers. Uh, She's trying to get in the way of these customers and alternative sources uh, of of supply. Certainly beyond those 35 cases, in all the cases, the number of ill-affected import-consuming industries was greater than the number of producers seeking the anti-dumping measures. So anti-dumping measures raise the costs of production on downstream US companies, uh, impeding their own competitiveness, their profits, their capacity to provide jobs. And and it encourages outsourcing to locations that have um, better access to these crucial imports. Um, Let's just turn, turn to these slides now. see that. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm just going to go to the next one then. Here we go. Um, th- this is uh, just to put some numbers on the, the, the statements I've been making. So this is anti-dumping cases where restricted imports hurt more than 10 downstream industries. So the names on the left are these various very sexy products. Uh, and the second column is the nu- shows the number of industries at the four-digit NAICS level that are consumers of the restricted product. Um, the third column is the export value of those industries. So, so to the first line, um, Dan, you're going to help me out here. I always, I always stumble with this purified cellulose. cellulose. Carb- CARBOXYMETHYLCELLULOSE. <laughs> the, the, the ITC folks uh, in the room uh, can say this in their sleep. Um, so the, the 17 industries that use that as an input uh, had 172 uh, billion dollars worth of exports, they employed 2.5 million workers. So this is sorted uh, in descending order of uh, cases, the NAIcs4 row, right. uh, column. This is 80 cases where the export value affected downstream industries uh, exceeds 100 billion. So this is sorted in descending order of exports. Um, so the stainless steel bar case affected 12 industries, and those industries $380, uh 380 billion dollars. Worth of, of, of goods. Um, this is 80 cases where affected downstream industry employment uh, exceeds 1 million, and it's in, it, so it's sorted in descending order of the final column there. So this, the point is, you know, if you're, poli- if you're gearing policy toward creating economic activity, creating jobs, uh, you are disadvantaging you're, you're 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 shooting yourself in the foot uh, with an anti-dumping policy that doesn't take into effect uh, the impact of restrictions on these companies. Uh, This is downstream industries victimized by restrictions in more than five anti-dumping cases. So basic chemical manufacturing, it's at 3251 in the NAICS. 11 anti-dumping measures impact their costs of production directly. Uh, Paints, 10 anti-dumping measures, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And then victimized downstream industries with export value exceeding 25 billion. Uh, so aerospace products uh, are, are hurt pretty significantly. Semiconductors, basic chemical manufacturing again. So this, this is just different ways to slice and dice the data to try to make the point that you know, we, we can't have policy. We can't just look at the the, the first order effects and disregard the second order effects because there are tremendous costs. Uh, and then this is uh, where employment exceeds 200,000. So the same kind of concept. Um, So this is cases that were initiated between 2000 and 2009. Um, Most of the anti-dumping cases initiated since 2010 have been on intermediate goods as well. I think every case but one since 2012 has been on intermediate goods. Uh, Sugar is just the latest example. It has eight downstream industries at the four-digit NAICS level. Uh, And in fact, I'm just going to read a couple of them. Uh, at, At the very top, in terms of Industries where sugar constitutes uh, the largest percentage of the cost of production. We have breakfast cereal manufacturing. Uh, thir- uh, sugar comprises almost 33% of the total cost of producing cereal. I mean, that, that's that's pretty that's pretty significant. Uh, non-chocolate confet- confectionery manufacturing, 28.1%. Um, you know, all all the way down. There are several industries that uh, where Sugar costs more than accounts for more than ten percent of the total cost of production um, so it 's just like um, all these reports about our shale gas abundance is to is causing this manufacturing resurgence it 's causing foreign investment to come to the United States to ch- chase na- lower natural gas prices because that 's a huge cost uh, component of the cost of production. same thing applies to sugar it 's the same thing so they 're looking for other places to go um, so I would recommend repealing the anti-dumping law. It's going to you know, take a while. We're, we're working on it. But uh, short of that, we should have a public interest provision in our law. And if, if you guys work for members, uh, maybe talk about it with them and, and, and give me a call. Uh, but a public interest provision, some countries have that, countries that have anti-dumping laws, um, uh, enable a downstream analysis. What's, what's going to be the impact if we impose these duties? And if, if it's too substantial, too significant, they decide not to impose the duties. And that's just common sense. Um, that, uh, in addition to that, a, a lesser duty rule might be a good idea. Uh, whereas instead of allowing the Commerce Department to inflate these anti-dumping rates and have a 78% margin imposed um, when you only need, you know, when there's only a 3% differential to, to get rid of the, the price that costs to account for the price that causes injury, have that, have that lower rate imposed. So it's, it's the lesser duty rule. You, you, you impose the lesser of the calculated dumping margin or the amount of duty necessary to eliminate the injury. Again, that puts a lot of power in the hands of bureaucrats to decide, but it certainly is uh, an improvement uh, on the status quo. Anyway, there, there are a lot of stories and a lot of examples I can give in Q&A, but I will step down now and yield the floor to Dan. And then, forward forward to to the the right. Right. yes, okay. sir.
3: Good afternoon. Uh, I would be happy in the question-and-answer period if you wish to comment on the Mexican anti-dumping case. I have had an opportunity to read the public version of the opinion and the uh, excellent staff report. Uh, and I'm familiar with the process because I guess I voted on some somewhere in over 700 anti-dumping duty orders. And so I'm, 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 I have not seen the confidential version. So, I, But I, if you want to ask about it, by all means. Um, I have been involved with sugar throughout my adult life. I have college friends who raise sugar beets for the three Minnesota sugar beet co-ops. So I am not in any respect anti-sugar. I like the people. I like the product. I use the product. Three topics. I want to discuss the sugar debate in 1981, uh, what's happened in sugar policy since then, and and then uh, we'll talk about uh, can we liberalize this market. Now, I I start with 1981 for two reasons. One is to put today's circumstances in some context. And the other is, that's when I started working on the Hill. (laughs) Uh, Well, and it's also interesting because at that moment, there was no sugar program in the United States. Prices had been high in the late 1970s. The old sugar provisions had expired. And there were no provisions. I think I must need to advance here. Okay, so we had a farm bill in 1981. You've just had one here, destroying your lives for, for the past two years. Some of you on the ag committee or on member staff? Yeah, you know, you know what I mean. Uh, I survived two farm bills, 1981 and 1985. I think by 85, Rick Pasco was here, weren't you? Yeah. Anyone else here in 81? <laughs> you were up? That's right. Yeah, with Vin Weber. Okay, great. But you he yeah, well, you were paying some of that price because yeah Vin suffered a little bit with that um, I'm sorry, I'm getting off the track uh, well, at any rate, the point I wanted to make I've been at this for a long time, and things have just gone downhill since I've started, and so uh, you know, in nineteen eighty one okay we we had uh wait I, I'm getting ahead of myself yeah the, now the, the, the basic discussion. Then the administration. This was the, the Reagan administration, just coming in. They really didn't want a sugar program. If they were going to have one, they would go to a 12 cent loan. The, in the previous years, the secretary had discretion to offer a loan, and, and the highest he ever gave was, uh, I think, 13 and three quarters cents. And you know that was that was uh, probably too high for the Reagan administration. The um, the growers came in asking for 18 cents. I'm not sure they really expected to get it, but that became the the mark, and uh, uh, and so that was what the the debate was all about. So, Boschwitz was representing the state with more sugar beets than any other Minnesota. And he he was very much a businessman and very market-oriented, and he was extremely uncomfortable with the idea of an 18-cent loan because it was so far above production cost, it was going to lead to difficulties. So, he... Boldly offered a compromise at fifteen cents. we got crushed absolutely crushed in in the committee i I think maybe Senator Luger voted for us. i don 't know who else it was not a not a pretty picture um, and uh, that gave me a, an increased appreciation for the political influence of the sugar industry um, okay now there there are some arguments against the a high loan rate that were made at that time. We, we tried without success to, to make these points. At, at that time, high fructose corn syrup was just becoming commercially available, and a small percentage of HFCS was used in US soft drinks, but the rest of it was all sugar. So we pointed out, look, you raise the price of sugar artificially, you're going to encourage the adoption of HFCS, which by the end of the 80s, it was all HFCS in soft drinks, okay? Uh, then the, the argument about um, uh, the, the, my colleagues have been making that industrial users and consumers would be hurt with paying it above market price. Uh, this high price would artificially encourage production, and it did, up until the point that the U.S. government put domestic marketing allocations that, that make it illegal for the U.S. growers to sell more than a set amount in the U.S. market. It would create trade friction. Yeah, well, we're talking about that now, aren't we? Uh, There's been a lot of intervening stuff, but we're back at uh, an anti-dumping case now. Um, And uh, and of course, then the... uh, um, Who prepared these notes, anyway? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, um, there I am, okay. Uh, An issue that's maybe not entirely obvious, except to some of those of you from farm areas, all of a sudden, you had a commodity that was subsidized way beyond the other commodities, and so you had certain growers making a lot of money, and their neighbors making less. And you would have uh, situations where a farmer had been renting a quarter section for ten years, and all of a sudden he finds out his neighbor who raises sugar has rented that away from him for twice the, the amount. A lot of a lot of uh, social aspects to this out in rural communities. Okay. Um, oh well, let's let's keep going here now since since 1981 what's happened we, we, got, we went back to quotas in 1982 uh, then uh, there were uh, res- restrictions on the amount of sugar that producers could sell in the domestic market um, the US government has paid foreign producers of sugar with quota rights to ship it to the United States not to deliver it in other words, you pay them not to sell to us Interesting uh, economic relationship there, isn't it? Uh, And then, the government is paid to divert sugar to non-food uses, principally ethanol and livestock feed. Okay. Um, And a a couple more. Um, In trade negotiations, the United States has, has taken a very much a we-need-to-protect-our-sugar-industry approach. And frankly, I think that's led to us getting less market access in other products because of that. For instance, I don't know whether we have any Australians here, but the Australians were much aggrieved that the United States was not willing to give an inch or a pound on sugar in negotiating that free trade agreement. And so what we didn't get because of hanging on to sugar, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure the Australians made us pay a price. Okay, and I, um, I'm starting to repeat myself. W- what that's left us with is a sugar program structure that stands up basically on four pillars. There is the loan rate, which is now up to 18 and three-quarters cents. There's the marketing allotments for domestic sales, which I've mentioned, uh, and the CCC moving sugar into non-food uses. And now uh, um, the, the tariff rate quotas, with the exception of sugar from Mexico, as, as was discussed. Me- Mexico, because of NAFTA, graduated out of the, out of the TRQ system. Um, sugar policy is different than for the other major commodities for the simple reason that the United States still is a net importer of sugar can't make this kind of program work for corn or soybeans or wheat because we export big chunks of those. More than a third of those commodities are, are, well, not corn, but more than a third of wheat and soybeans go into export markets. And so having a restriction at the US border to keep it from coming in really doesn't do anything for you. So that's just not a part of the, the program structure. In sugar, because we are a net importer, protecting the border is a really important issue for the industry. How do we reform sugar? Much of my career has been devoted to trying to reform policies that I thought needed. it. I've had only limited success so far. Maybe it'll get better from here. Um, unilateral reform would happen if Congress, at some point, passes provisions that end the program. And this is discussed every time there's a farm bill. And sometimes those votes have come close. And um, you know, if the arguments are made thoughtfully, maybe next time they will succeed. So that is out there as an option. I think that would be a good outcome, and I'll get get—I'll uh, explain that a little bit more in a bit. But there's also the possibility of multilateral reform, and that ball really is in the court of the domestic industry. They would have to start it moving. In a way, they have, because they have a policy position, have had for years that they would support a multilateral reform as long as everyone else does it. All the other countries put their policies on the table and reform them, and then the US industry would be happy to go along. So they have that policy position, but they have not yet brought themselves to act upon it. The reason for having this this, uh, PowerPoint presentation is for this slide, which you you may be too far away to see it, but let me describe it to you. it's, it's easy to find afterwards because this was in the USDA sweetener, sugar and sweetener outlook it, from May 15 this year. Uh, and it is uh, based on an analysis done by LMC International, a very fine consulting firm that I was involved with substantially when I was in the private sector working with them. I have a lot of respect for their work. This is how they see global costs of sugar. Uh, what you have on the vertical axis is um, an index of production costs for sugar and, and high fructose sweeteners globally. Can you see where 100 is there, the, the horizontal bar to the left? That's, that's low-cost cane produced, largely in south-central Brazil. Uh and I'll, I'll go back and talk about that a little bit more. But the, the, the horizontal axis, then, is uh, sugar production cumulatively as you go to the right so that by the time you're at the right side, you're at 219 million metric tons of nutritive sweeteners produced globally. Okay. Now, uh, I'm going to come over and I'm going to talk from here just, just to, to try to make that. a point. Okay. So this is 100% here. Okay. U.S. beets are just one notch up, it's it's about 20% up. Here, the low cost beef production is the United States, Denmark, France, a number of other relatively efficient producers. Right next to it is something called NAFTA. NAFTA in this analysis is cane sugar production that comes from Mexico, Mexico, Canada, and the United States. You can pretty well kick Canada out because they don't have any. So It's US and Mexican cane sugar put lumped together for this analysis at a relatively similar cost structure, and again, about 20% more expensive than the lowest cost sugar in the world. So the US sugar industry is right in the center of global production costs. You've got 60 million tons of sugar off to the right-hand side of this chart that is more expensive, less efficient, than what we produce in the United States. Now, here we have an upward-sloping line based on costs. From your study of economics, what do we call that sort of line? <laughs> Any, anyone bold enough to volunteer? Pardon? Supply curve. A supply curve. Absolutely correct. Now, this, this is not a perfect supply curve in that for two reasons. One is that you wouldn't expect the market to respond to this because governments, including ours, have lots of restrictions in place that keep the keep it from reflecting price as demand changes, okay? And the other reason is that, because of the way the analysis was done, this is based on average costs, and with su- a supply curve, we are thinking more in terms of marginal costs. But so, uh, setting aside those two caveats, this is still, I think, a really decent representation of a global supply curve for sh- sugar and fructose. Okay. Now, um, This next slide I just want to show you quickly to let you know it's there in, if you want to Google uh, sugar and sweetener outlook, uh, you would find this. This explains the country breakdowns, the groupings from the previous chart. And I don't want to spend any time on it. I just want you to know it it does exist. So what is this supply curve trying to tell us? Well, my takeaway is that, the United States industry should do reasonably well under liberalization. Now, a particularly multilateral liberalization, because the high cost producers on that curve are going to have some have to make some adjustments if the world was entirely liberalized. Now, in unilateral adjustment, I, I actually think the US industry would come out looking pretty decent then as well. I mean, they wouldn't like it. It would force them to accept a lot of change that the marketplace has been protected from for all these years. But an important advantage that I think many people would underestimate is that they are producing sugar quite close to major domestic users of sugar that need large commercial volumes. Yes, you can produce sugar in south-central Brazil for less. but. You've got to take the raws. You've got, to, you've got to refine them, and that's three or four. Well, you probably leave it in raw form there. But you've got to get it to Santos to the port, which costs you two cents. You've got to get it fobbed onto the vessel for probably a cent and a half. You've got to ship it up to a US refinery, which is another two cents. You've got to refine it there, which is three or four cents. You've got to get it off the vessel, too. Doug will correct me on these costs if I'm, if I'm off. But, but what I'm saying is, by the time you get that really low-cost world sugar to Chicago, where you can make candy with it, it costs you less to get your sugar from Minnesota, okay? So so that's why I think even unilateral liberalization is not something that's gonna be fatal to the U.S. industry. It's something the industry may not embrace, but from a policy perspective, we should not be thinking we have to protect this industry against all these terrible international policies. There are some terrible international policies, okay? But those are not going to be destructive of the U.S. industry, okay? Uh, one other point. You know, Canada produces beet sugar. They have no import restrictions. They have no domestic support program. Now, sugar is not hockey. Okay. If this was hockey, you'd think the Canadians have an inherent advantage. The United States probably can't compete. But in sugar, I wouldn't want to be the person to say that the Canadians are better sugar growers than the U.S. growers. Uh, I, you know, so. <laughs> One last slide. Let me get out of this here. So what could the sugar industry do if it really wanted to do something useful? Not bring a dumping case, okay. Uh, uh, There is a history of sectoral negotiations among private sector players who are interested in reform in certain areas. A real well-known one is the Pharmaceutical Zero for Zero Initiative from the Uruguay Round. Then on top of that, we had the information technology agreement, which is, this is the private sector getting together and saying, we ought to to get rid of these trade barriers. And then they go to their governments, and the governments say, hey, guys, if you want it, I'm going to give it to you. But it requires a a grassroots up type of effort. You can't force it down. Um, There is an organization called the Global Alliance for Sugar Trade Reform and Liberalization. Did I get it right? Whatever. Uh, it's existed since before the Doha round began, and uh, the United States industry, from what I can tell, has been very cautious about engaging with these people because they want reform, and you know, the U.S. industry has its policy position, but it's, you know, kind of hard to take that step and start discussing it. I think the industry ought to take that step. I think they ought to begin uh, a, a discussion with the global alliance. I bet the People who head the alliance would be just delighted to get that phone call from the U.S. industry. Let's go for it, because frankly, the alternative is that one of these years, sugar's going to lose the vote, and they're going to get unilateral reform. So if I'm wanting the best interest of the U.S. sugar industry, I think I'm doing them a favor to suggest get off your duff and go for it. And then they should drop the anti-dumping countervailing duty case against Mexico, I think, because those are expensive. It's going to cost them well north of a million dollars to do the thing, and that's only in cash to lawyers. That's not all the time it takes them internally. If they took that time and money and instead put it into building a, a, a global consensus, it would be money really well spent. And with that, I thank you very much, and I apologize to the organizers for going a little bit long.